Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. Hope everything is going all right. I have another flashback episode for you today. I am going to be sharing an outtake from episode 520, my conversation with author Jonathan Ames. It first aired on May 16th, 2018. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the Other People podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Jonathan Ames is the author of several books, including I Pass Like Night, The Extra Man, What's Not to Love, My Less Than Secret Life, The Alcoholic, The Double Life is Twice as Good, and most recently, a string of noir novels, including You Were Never Really Here, which was adapted into a film starring Joaquin Phoenix, another one called A Man Named Doll, and another called The Wheel of Doll. Jonathan Ames is also the creator of two television series, Blunt Talk and Bored to Death, an outtake from episode 520, my conversation with Jonathan Ames, is coming up in just a couple of minutes. A quick reminder that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe for free over at Substack. My newsletter lives over at Substack. I believe the website is bradlisty.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, and I will let you know on a weekly basis about the latest episodes of this podcast. I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading 
and finding interesting. So if that sounds good, go sign up for my newsletter over at Substack. Likewise, you can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you listen to this show regularly, if you like it, if you get something from it, I hope you will consider joining the Other People Patreon community. Help keep this thing going into the future. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. All right, so once again, today's flashback features an outtake from episode 520, my conversation with Jonathan Ames. It first aired on May 16th, 2018. A reminder that the full episode is available in the feed, so if you like this flashback, if you like this outtake, and you want to hear the full conversation, just go look for episode 520. It is there, waiting for you. All right, here I am, a few years ago, talking with Jonathan Ames. No, I know, I just met you, but, and, yeah, dude, we're all so madly insecure. This This is the demon. We have these voices in our mind that are so unkind that we all have to manage to greater or lesser degree. And anyway, some guy in college who I really looked up to, this graduate student, told me I wasn't a natural writer. And my grammar was terrible. I didn't understand the sentence until I actually was teaching composition in my late 20s at a business school. And I'd published the first novel. And I remember the editor saying, this is a run-on sentence. This is a run-on sentence. But they made sense to me. I'm like, well, you know. Anyway, so, you know, for 30, 40 years, I haven't felt like a natural writer because that guy said it. And I really looked up to him. He, was a, he had gone to Harvard. He was a bit effete, but he, he was one of these people that could declare things, you right, know, like right. an Oscar Wilde. What's he doing now? <laughs> well, sadly, he did pass away. But, oh. And I also really admired him. But um, a- anyway, but I'm like, holy cow, I've been surviving as a writer for 29 years now. My first book came out in 1989. That's a long time. I mean, a 29-year-old person is like mature. My career is 29 years old. But that's because I'm, you know, I'm getting old myself or whatever. Yeah, as are we all, you know. I know. It's really, it's, uh, you, you heard that it would happen and then it actually happens. Like, yeah, like I, I have this moment, not terribly frequently, but every mm-hmm. once in a while you stop and you just go, oh, youth. Like I'll mm-hmm. see young people mm-hmm. or I'll have some, some mm-hmm. smell or mm-hmm. some, you know, mm-hmm. sensory experience will bring mm-hmm. me back and you're just like, it's gone. Mm. It's sad. <laughs> yeah, well, I find I do want to go to bed earlier. Um, anyway, let's not get onto this depressing topic. <laughs> but I, I don't want to... Well, actually, that's controlling. If you want to continue exploring, no, 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 no. I could tell you my various ailments. Uh, here's a question I have for you regarding doing a lot of different things and, and jumping around like a flea or mm-hmm. whatever it is. It, the, the, the decisions that you've made and the projects that you've taken on and, uh, you know, whether it's in television or writing, uh, essays or writing fiction mm. or, mm. uh, writing, uh, in a comedic vein or mm. writing in a more, uh, you know, a crime or genre vein, mm-hmm. like how do you make those decisions? Are they largely instinctive? Are you, uh, you know, are they an outgrowth of conversations you're having with, mm. uh, creative collaborators or somebody mm. who's a trusted confidant? Like, how mm. do you, how do you make the choices that you have made? Yeah. I mean, I remember years ago, um, some guy interviewing me 
And uh, I think it was probably like 2004 when my, my, my novel Wake Up Sir came out. And, uh, and when he interviewed me, he, he made it seem as if I must have had a master plan for everything, like that I would have this book come out at this time. And I think I was about to shoot a TV pilot and there's been no master plan. It's, it's been, I feel like improvisation every step of the way. It's almost like walking along and finding like a penny on the ground and you pick it up. I mean, obviously things would lead to it. Like this latest vein of writing pulp fiction and writing a thriller that was in some ways, uh, you know, several, like I, I wrote, you were never really here. This most recent book originally in 2012, but for about four or five years at that point, I'd been reading nonstop only crime novels and page turners. And before that I had a long fascination with Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. And, and then I got an op- opportunity from byliner, uh, which was a w- web magazine at the time for a nice, word count and a nice fee to write a piece of long form fiction. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to write a thriller. So it wasn't like I had been planning for months or, or made this choice. Suddenly an opportunity arose. And then, and I'd been reading all these novels by Richard Stark, these crime novels. And so then I, I took my whack at it, you you know? So it feels like things accrue, you know, a reading or things I'm interested in, and then maybe an opportunity arises, then you go for it. Like back in the 90s, my second novel, The Extra Man, had been rejected by about 20 publishers. And I was brokenhearted. And I, and I was going to uh, give up on writing. Um, this woman uh, who was studying Zen Buddhism at the time said to me, whatever you hold on to will cause you pain. You know, the, the notion of attachment. And I thought, you know what? I'm holding on to the dream of being a writer. I've got, and it's causing me pain. I've got to let go of this dream. So I made a list of other things to do. And then the number four was revise the novel one more time, <laughs> The Extra Man. And around that time, as I began to let go of the dream of being a writer, I did start feeling better. You know, I'm like, okay, I will make something of my life. But a friend very kindly took part of the novel to an editor at the New York Press and read some of it to him out loud. And the editor at the New York press said, I'll publish that. They got in touch with me. And so suddenly I took a piece of my novel out, kind of turned it into nonfiction and had a piece published in the New York press and had published something for the first time in years. I really struggled between my first and second book. So then I developed a relationship with the New York press, which was this free paper, late nineties, New York kind of pre-internet an alternative free paper. They were publishing all sorts of weird stuff and I published a few pieces with them. And then I saw that the big thing in that paper was to have a column. And I asked, could I have a column? And at first they said no. And then they came back to me and said, yes. Yeah. So then suddenly for three years, I, every two weeks I wrote a column. You know, I got paid, I think, 250 bucks a column. It was a main way I sustained myself in the late 90s along with teaching. And so then suddenly I had a nonfiction career writing these columns. And then magazines came to me because of what they had read in those columns. And then I collected those into books. So these choices, they're just unusual in a way well, or, yeah. or, or lucky. You stumble into, but you got to know luck when it comes along. Like, you know what I'm saying? You have to find the penny. Yeah. And you got to just keep putting stuff out there, you, you know? So by putting the columns out there that led to magazine work and then, and then, you, you know, and just, and then I wrote a short story at some point called bored to death. Uh, for Esquire magazine and they didn't go for it. 
they, you know, they didn't want to run it. It was too long. So then I, I sent it to McSweeney's and they said, we'll go for it. And then around that time, even though it's, I'm jumping all over the place, I'd sort of given up on ever making in Hollywood. I had this failed TV pilot in 2004, but then someone at HBO wanted to meet me just in a general meeting. I hadn't done a Hollywood meeting for a while, but I had this story bored to death, which wasn't going to be published yet, but I gave it to the executive and, and I said, I think there could be a movie or TV show in this. And then she's like, yeah. So then I develop it. So you know what I mean? Like the, like now, of course I'm getting these opportunities and people are wanting to meet me over the years or a friend brings my stuff to the guy at New York press, but it, it was it's not been some grand plan. It's been like uh, rock climbing. You well, know, when yeah. you rock climb, you're like, okay, there's a crevice. I'll put my hand up there. And then sometimes your hand falls out. So I feel like that's how it's happened. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, and I think from the outside looking in, the tendency when someone has some success, especially in a career as perilous as the arts, the tendency is to want to believe that it was a linear path to the mountaintop, mm. if there is even a mountaintop, mm. or that there was some sort of like, you know, grand strategic thinking that went into mm. it. But really, it's like working hard, knowing an opportunity when it comes along, being willing to risk, being willing to be flexible. Because some people, I think, have very rigid and defined ideas about who they are creatively and what they're going to do. And you seem like somebody who, when somebody's been like, you want to try this? You said yes. Yeah, yeah. And and it's scary, too. You know, when I, I, I had never written a script, like, in 2004, but I got an opportunity. Again, here's, like, an interesting one. Again, I feel like there's probably a lot of writers who listen to your podcast and beginning writers so and beginning performers so in the early 90s i used to do these shows in new york at a nightclub called the fez and i was struggling to write but i i had found that when i spoke in front of a crowd they laughed it happened i had gone to some aa meetings 
and I would talk about my life and everyone would laugh. I was like, wait, this is upsetting stuff. Don't, you know? <laughs> but then I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll just go on stage. And so I began to perform starting in 92 at this nightclub called The Fez. And I had my own little underground following that filled this nightclub and i do model why have i heard of the fez is that Uh, like a famous place it was a well-known place it it was open for about 13 years it was on lafayette street it was underneath the time cafe the charles mingus band would play there on thursday nights i began working the door there which is how uh, anyways long story but i began performing there working the door there jeff buckley that's kind of one of the places where he began to be known was playing there and and so I would put on these shows and I would tell stories kind of like Spalding Gray, these monologues, and I kept hoping to be discovered, you know, and I never was, of course. But then about 12 years later, after performing there, and I had performed there for about a decade, a woman who used to come to my show in like 93, 94, had become a booker on the Letterman show, gave Letterman one of my books to read. He liked it, mentions it because he was a voracious reader. And he, and he said to her, thank you for that book. And she goes, well, you know, maybe you should have him on. He's really funny. So Letterman began to have me on in 2003 as kind of a, an eccentric at the end, you know, for five minutes. Right. And sometimes he would have David Sedaris and David Rakoff and had me on. And because I was on Letterman, in a sense, that gave me a chance when I came out to L.A., someone was like, I think there's a TV show in my collection, my nonfiction. Right. So the first thing I pitched out in Hollywood was a TV show called What's Not to Love. And and I pitched it saying it would be a poor man's curb your enthusiasm. But I said, literally, I'm poor. So as, as opposed to Larry David, who was quite wealthy. So again, like something I was doing in 93 uh, bore fruit in 2003, 2004 with Letterman. So I, I always would tell my writing students that, you know, you just put stuff out there. You don't know how it's going to come back to you or when. Right. And what was it like to meet Letterman on the set. I mean, and people are famously talk like he doesn't talk to you during commercials and it's like, you know, you, you feel sort of odd sitting there and then suddenly he's on like, what did you have any kind of like warm exchange with him? Did you feel a sense of connect? Cause I, I grew up in Indiana, like not far from where Letterman grew up. And I've always felt like, uh, I don't know, he was a big figure in my youth, and I felt like a sense of connection to him mm-hmm. uh, and a sense of reverence. Like, I always loved David Letterman, mm-hmm. but he's a difficult character. Like, Did you have a sense of who he really is or any kind of... Um, I would say yes, in that he was very warm to me. And I think you know maybe he liked the the nuts that would come on his show, maybe more than the Hollywood stars or something. And so, and maybe he knew that people like me would be extra nervous. I mean, I remember being in my little dressing room, just nervous as hell, you know, and then you're in the wing of the thing. And there was like some older fellow going, okay, go on now and sort of push me in the butt. And I'd walk out and I felt like, you know, I was having a hypoglycemic reaction. And then there I am shaking his hand and I'm live on TV and talking about my balding pattern and his balding pattern. And, and then also, yeah, the way you would prep for it is they're like, okay, and I think they would call me on the phone the day before. Here are the questions Dave might ask. And or and and then or maybe with the person I would come up with some funny stories and then they'd be like, All right, here are the questions he might ask. This will trigger these stories that we've discussed, or he might not ask any of these questions, or he might ask them in a completely different order. So it was like be ready to wing it and be prepared. It was like this weird mix. And uh, he just seemed to get a kick out of me. And in the commercial break, I remember he was really warm to me. 
And then I think one time my parents came and they got to sit at his desk and have their picture taken. And oh, wow. I was on like three times. So, yeah, he was very kind to me. That's um, great. And, uh, but yeah, so that was, you know, that was a fun experience. A long time ago now. feels like it happened to another person. Well, and when was that? That was in the- uh, 2003, 2004. So like 14 years ago. Yeah, it's weird. Like, uh, I can think to myself, well, that's not that long ago, but that actually isn't. I know, it's I know. Almost 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you come to Los Angeles, you've never done TV, but you had these Letterman appearances. That sort of stuff can really help. You know, it can yeah. help you get in the door and people say, okay, well, this guy's right. somebody. Or, you well, know. Letterman has said he's funny. Right. Because everyone, you know, we all, you know, we all are, especially certain, the people who make these money decisions, they you know they it's a little bit like blurbs in the book business it's like okay someone else has said this is good i'll believe it's good too maybe or it just reassures them or confirms their own intuition or it gives them something to tell their boss Mm -hmm. but he was on letterman (laughs) yeah and we left a tape and they liked the pitch and so yeah this was 2004 and then i got commissioned to write my first pilot i didn't have final draft but i quickly got it and uh you know took a swing at it and we did shoot that pilot in which I played myself, but it, it didn't work out. I guess my standard line, you know, I didn't play myself very well. (laughs) (laughs) Lack of self knowledge and self awareness has always been an issue. Well, it's, but it's hard. I mean, just to get through the hoop to get to where the pilot is shot. Cause I've made some rounds with Hollywood (laughs) meetings and, you know, gotten into the pilot stage (laughs) and it's, it's also precarious and (laughs) it can seem mysterious it still is a little bit mysterious to me how these decisions are actually made. It, it seems like timing's got to be right. Mm-hmm. It seems like, the, you know, you got to show up right when they're looking for a certain kind of thing, or mm-hmm. you got to, or you got to be really good in the room. Mm-hmm. I would imagine doing that live show in New York and being on Letterman, especially, that had to have prepared you well to be in the room pitching yourself. Yeah, I I've been uh, I think a good pitcher because um, I. I become a performer in the room. I also used to be a teacher. And so both being a performer and a teacher when pitching things in Hollywood is helpful because on one hand you have to to quickly educate them in a coherent way and then you want to perform and be amusing. So it's an interesting mix. So I've had some really good luck pitching, I have to say. But in terms of getting things made and... um, I refer to it once and I'm quoting myself as kind of a Swiss clock of luck so it's got to like move as beautifully as a swiss clock all these pieces coming together but like you said the timing the moment and it all has to sort of come together it's kind of incredible i mean like for me with like bored to death i mean it it came together like a swiss clock and yet so much luck involved who was the who who at hbo championed you just this executive that you met with but was it the reason I ask is that, like, in my head, I sometimes think, well, it's got to be somebody who's got transactional power, like somebody who mm. can actually press the green light button. Or was mm. it somebody who just championed you to the person who had the green light button under their control? It was someone who championed me to the to the person with their finger on the green light button. And there is like, an, there, actual, there's an actual green light button. <laughs> like, if you go into the room, and there's a red button and a green button. It's like that game Simon or something. The person I went to, now she'll get deluged with emails perhaps, was Sarah Condon at HBO. And I I owe so much to her. And she had been an executive at HBO, but but then she became someone who had like a producing deal at HBO. 
and they gave her a New York office, and she could and bring things first to HBO, but if they didn't want them, she could take them elsewhere. But she had worked at HBO for like a decade, and uh -huh. now she was kind of... You, you know, um, still part of HBO, but also free. It's an interesting combination. And uh, so, and she was just meeting writers. And does anyone have anything in their desk drawer? This was back in 2007. And I almost missed the meeting because I had, I had told the Hollywood people I'd gotten involved with, don't, you don't have to send me on any more meetings because sort of what you were talking about. And this one comedy writer had once told me about LA and Hollywood a million meetings, no deals. Right. You know, and I would come out here, stay in a motel, have map quests, drive all over, meet with really intelligent people, and nothing would happen. And it, I would But it would feel good. Sometimes yeah. the meetings you're like, Oh, that was great, I really like that person, and then mm. you never hear from them. Well, they meetings. were <laughs> usually really like book readers. You know, they love books, a lot of these people and these and so nothing happened. And so after about two years of coming out here every few months like a some kind of migrating bird. Um, <laughs> I gave up on it, and I hadn't done any meetings for a year. But then I get this call. There's someone in New York who wants to meet me where I was living at the time. I thought, all right, well, I said no meetings. <laughs> you know. But so I'll go. And then this particular day, I was out late with my girlfriend at the time, and it was probably pretty hungover. And I literally, I mean, it sounds old-fashioned. I slept through the time, woke up. It was a hot New York day. I thought, you know, I'm not going to go. And I thought, oh, screw it, go. And I called, got there about 45 minutes late, dripping sweat, major subway ride. I was way uptown, you know, north of Columbia, had to get to Midtown. And then that turned out to be the meeting that probably changed my life. All right, folks, there we go. That was Jonathan Ames from episode 520. It first aired on May 16th, 2018. A reminder that the full episode, the full conversation is available in the feed. Just look for episode 520 if you want to hear the full hour with Jonathan Ames. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. You can also subscribe for free to my weekly email newsletter over at Substack. Join the other people patreon community over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod help keep this program going into the future if you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a favor please rate this show wherever you listen give it a rating write a little review if that's an option it helps the show in the rankings it helps the show find new listeners if you would like to get another people t-shirt or a sweatshirt you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. And finally, if you would like to read my latest novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I'll read it to you. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Sunday... I will be in conversation with Lexi Freeman, author of a new novel called The Book of Ein, a very funny novel, satirical novel, and a great conversation with a very talented author, Lexi Freeman, coming up on Sunday. So stay tuned.